Young people have such powerful voices in society, but they're also consistently underestimated. Young people are your customers, your future workforce, the shapers of future policy, the heirs to the planet, and now the architects of the climate movement. You're listening to Hope Act Thrive by Be The Future. Or we like to call it HATS for short. And you, my dear listeners, are our mad hatters. HAT is an inspirational podcast for guardians of the next generation. Whether you're a planet-conscious parent, groovy grandparent, fab foster carer, terrific teacher, awesome auntie, or any other member of the extended family. We're having conversations with leading doers, thinkers, and shakers in climate action that will inspire you to stay optimistic, feel part of an ever-growing movement, and take actions that fit into your busy lives. Just like you, we want to create a better, greener, fairer future for the kids in our life. So, who are we? I'm Sally Giblin, an environmentalist, writer and parent, and co-host of this podcast. I'm the one providing the Aussie accent. And I'm Helen Hill, and I'm an educator, author and designer. The one with a very exotic British Bolton accent. Hello and welcome to the Hope Act Thrive podcast. Today's episode is with Natalie Kiriakou, a social entrepreneur, environmentalist, writer and speaker who's inspired by curiosity and impact. She's the CEO of My Green World, PwC's business development lead for ESG, Environment, Social and Governance, and a board committee member at Care Australia. Her passion lies in exploring the intersection of environmental and social issues in Australia and abroad. Natalie was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia for her services to wildlife and environmental conservation and education in 2018. She's a Forbes 30 Under 30 honoree in recognition of her social entrepreneurship and a UNEP Young Champion of the Earth Prize finalist. This episode is supported by the Climate Reality Project, Australia and Pacific. Founded and chaired by Nobel Laureate and former US Vice President, Honorable Al Gore in 2006, the Climate Reality Project catalyzes solutions to the climate crisis by empowering people from all walks of life to act on climate change. The Australia and the Pacific branch trains, supports and amplifies the voices of climate reality leaders across Australia, New Zealand and the Blue Pacific. In this conversation, we'll talk about youth-focused environmental conservation, the intersection of environmental and social issues and elevating diverse voices in climate conversations. So let's get into it. Welcome to the podcast, Natalie. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. Fabulous. Wonderful to have you on. And uh, I think a lot of the things you're involved in and things you're passionate about and the work you do are exactly the sorts of things that Helen and I are. So we're very excited to chat to you today. And I guess the first thing we just love to talk to you about is, can you talk us through your passion for wildlife and environmental conservation and education? You know, what sparked this path for you? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I get, I get asked this question quite a lot and if there's a particular moment um, that sparked my, my interest and passion. And I think for most of my life I was a very outdoorsy kid, um, very passionate about wildlife and nature and animals, uh, also just very curious. So I think I had, had it embedded in my, my psyche a little bit all my life. But I, I do tell the story that the time that most shaped the path that I'm on today would be the time the orangutan stole my underwear in Borneo. 
And so this was over 10 years ago and I, I had an opportunity to work in the jungles of Borneo as part of an orangutan rehabilitation project and the mission was to rehabilitate orphaned and confiscated orangutans. And, and my personal aim there was to learn more about the challenges facing some of um, the world's most iconic species um, and to write an article about the impact of palm oil on orangutans and, and also many lesser, other, uh, lesser known species. And so I was living in a small guest house that, um, that backed onto one of the few remaining tracts of rainforest in the region and every day was um, rewarding and, and gruelling and I would be, um, you know, bottle feeding infant orangutans, sourcing food for local wildlife, teaching um, juvenile orangutans to climb trees and trekking through the jungles to monitor wild orangutan populations. And so that was a really critical experience for me um, that, that sort of led to me developing, um, I guess, my, my skill set in environmental and wildlife conservation. But there was this one particular moment when I was living in this guest house and I heard some commotion on my balcony and I walked outside and there was an orangutan and it was sitting on my balcony and it had my, was whole, had my one pair of my underwear uh, draped around his neck and was just holding the other pair, wringing it out. He must have watched me wringing out my washing. Um, and anyway, a, a tug of war contest ensued and I lost and this orangutan went gleefully running back into the forest wearing my underwear or wearing my undies around his neck. Um, and I found out later that his name was Miko and he was a rehabilitation failure. So he had been, his mother had been killed to make way for palm oil plantations and um, they, the centre had tried to re rehabilitate him, but he'd become too accustomed to humanity, really. And so he, he it's tragic, but, but also a little bit funny that he used to lurk around the guest house and steal people's items. But I, I guess Miko and, and this experience is really symbolic of the, the crimes against nature and, um, that we've committed. And, and also it helped me to really understand that balance between wildlife, the environment, human survival and livelihoods and um, I, I, I'd like to think it was probably that particular moment that, that set me on my um, current path and, and really solidified my passion for wildlife and the environment. Oh, I think you've just absolutely described my life goal <laughs> in that story. In that question people always ask about, what would you do if you were a millionaire and didn't have to work? I always say, go and work the orangutans and do exactly what you're just talking about. Maybe not donating me knickers, but like. You know, the, the, oh, that's just what what an experience to have had. That's phenomenal. I love the idea that there's, there was probably wildlife photographers in that jungle thinking, why is that orangutan got this underwear? <laughs> <laughs> I might be on record somewhere in life. But moving from like one set of little monkeys to another, <laughs> why did you decide to go and focus on young people then after these experiences? It was quite simple. The, the, how I thought about it was that, young people have such powerful voices in society but they're also consistently underestimated um i mean young people are uh, you know your, your customers your your future workforce the shapers of future policy the, the heirs to the planet the um and, and now the architects of the climate movement so i think back then um i i was noticing just the tremendous power young people had not only to um, encourage people to listen, whether it's, you know, 
telling their parents about the climate crisis and often teaching, you know, knowing a little bit more than their, their parents or elders do about um, wildlife and environment, but how I might be able to play a small role in empowering or elevating their voices. And I was also just really struck by when engaging with young people and, you know, through the, the young people in my own family, the ability for them to really deconstruct something complex into simple terminology, accessible terminology that makes sense to everybody. I think as an adult, we, or as adults, we can often <laughs> confuse things or, um, or, 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 or have overly complex ways of describing an event or um, an issue. But when I spoke with young people, it was, it just made so much sense. And so I, I think I, I wanted to both amplify their voices, but learn a lot from them and, and have them um, embedded in more decision-making structures and have them embedded in more climate conversations to, to really draw on their knowledge and, and experiences um, and, and their, I guess, unique, very unique experiences. I completely understand where you're coming from there, Nat. And I think there's something really special with young people that they often seem to have just this inherent love of and understanding of how much nature and animals and all those all those things that are so pure actually really do matter. And they can really see that so clearly. And I think, you know, it's absolutely not their responsibility to solve the challenges of where we're at today in terms of the climate and biodiversity crisis. You know, adults definitely have to lead the action and making change and making things happen. But I think being able to empower them and, you know, for them to really be part of a different generation, I guess, that really leads on this and really prioritises it as part of how society goes forward is, is incredibly important. So, yeah, Helen and I completely understand where you're coming from on that. And I guess to link into that, so how do you think we best then nurture and keep inspiring that love of nature for young people and that desire to protect it? Yeah, I think there's so many wonderful opportunities for parents, teachers, community members to facilitate this shared learning and being both mentors and mentees in this uh, learning journey and this um, this nature journey for me as a child it was all about spending I spent 90% of my time outdoors and the rest of it well I was you know curled up with a book so I'm I very much lean on books and and getting outdoors but I think that um, there's huge untapped opportunity for us to encourage more purposeful engagement with nature so you know, when we're outdoors, going outside to try to identify species, um, playing in the woods, establishing your own veggie garden, um, you know, visiting the ocean and learning about different marine life. And nature's so incredibly cool. It doesn't take much for kids to appreciate it. I think the first step is just actually going outside and engaging with young people and encouraging questions and sharing fun facts like you know did you know that the bee we have the bee to thank for the majority of the food we eat or, or just offering that sense of purpose and let's try to let's get together and try to figure out how old the trees in the backyard are and let's start brainstorming and sharing some ideas or around how we can help trees or ways in which uh, trees are important I think there's just so many opportunities for us to just have really simple but powerful and inspiring learnings in in nature and it's it's just lots and lots of questions and I always I always think back to any conversation you have with young people it always I think a lot of the time it will come down to why but why but why 
And so I always approach learning like that. Why? Why? Why is the tree there? Why are trees important? Um, and just keep asking why and being and, and exploring and understand exploring the answers together. I think it can be um, a huge amount of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's quite amazing too, isn't it? When you really dig a, even just a little bit deeper under the surface with nature, what amazing things there are. We had this guest called Adele Dutois in last season of the podcast and she's a marine biologist and she's incredibly passionate about biomimicry and essentially learning so much from these incredible things that actually happen in nature that we can learn from as part of solutions to, to make our world more nature focused and look after the environment more. And even things like, you know, Velcro actually comes from, you know, the reaction between two different plants plants and so it's, it's, it's incredible once you really you didn't even just go a little bit under the surface too and I guess something that we'd love to talk to you a little bit more about is this whole idea of intersectional environmentalism because often there isn't enough conversation about how environmental and social issues do intersect and especially around you know more diverse voices so is it possible for you to talk us through that? Absolutely. Yeah, so intersectional environmentalism is something I'm really passionate about. And basically, it's a, it's a more inclusive view of environmental, uh, environmentalism, and it highlights the deep intersection of people and planet. But what it also does is it highlights the way in which marginalised people are most impacted by climate change, and how they also, not only are they impacted the most by climate change, but excluded from environmental decision making. So, for example, uh, if we have a when a climate disaster strikes, um, and, that, and they are striking with increasing frequency due to climate change, um, it's the world's most vulnerable people who are the most heavily affected. So, um, I think the UN estimates that about eighty percent of people impacted by climate change are women, and women and children wield less socioeconomic power. They're more likely to experience poverty than men, and this often translates to disproportionate risk and burden placed on women and children in times of um, this crisis. And not only that, it amplifies existing inequalities. And, and these inequalities are felt differently by men and women and also by wealthy versus poor. So uh, in settings affected by you know, social, political and economic inequality, climate crisis amplifies that. And then we have, you can look at some of the structural biases and socially constructed roles and how they intersect with climate change. So a huge burden of unpaid care, domestic duties and agricultural production fall on women. Um, and this also increases women's vulnerability and preparedness to climate related um, events. So uh, women are responsible for you know, gathering most of the world's water. When climate disaster strikes, what happens to them? They're also tasked with, you know, bringing, in times of disaster, they'll be tasked with minding the children, bringing them into safety. And so th there's a huge burden and, and lots of, um, I guess, intersecting impacts that we often don't consider. We have those elements, but we also have the, the risks of increased violence. So climate change is also uh, considered a threat multiplier. So it exacerbates a lot of other issues. So um, women will be increasingly exposed to violence, um, sexual and domestic abuse, trafficking conflict. And so climate change is really amplifying those inequalities. Um, and so my hope is that when we're having conversations around climate change, not only are we considering the impacts that climate change will be having on marginalised populations, um, whether that's rural women, uh, women in general, whether it's um, Indigenous peoples, we're 
we're not only considering those the systemic effects that climate change is having on these populations, but we're also included. They're also included at the decision making table when we have, you know, majority of the um, the world's parliamentarians and world CEOs and key decision makers around the world are not women. Um, I mean, women and particularly women of colour are vastly underrepresented in all power structures around all, um, across the entire globe. So I think it's, it, it's, a, it's tackling it twofold, seeing the incredible power that women have to be able to shape climate policy, but also how heavily impacted people, particularly women, are by climate change. Well, that's really fast. Well, I was going to say fascinating. That doesn't feel like the right word. I think shocking is is the one I was maybe looking for. That I had no idea about that statistic with the eighty percent of women. And this is an area that is a big learning point for me right now because I do feel like it's an area we're just maybe not educated about as much. So it, it's really interesting. Can you give us any ideas about how we could make environmentalism more equitable and diverse for everybody? Yeah, absolutely. To me, the answer is really simple, though I think putting it into practice has been the big challenge. We need more diverse voices at decision-making tables. So this means government in, in environmental ministerial positions. So there's been a huge link between the climate progress of certain countries. So we think of Scandinavian countries, also New Zealand, and who sits in the leadership positions. So more countries with more diverse leadership have more progressive climate policies. We need more women and diverse voices on company boards, on non-profit boards. We need to be also including people who are on the ground experiencing the brunt of climate change into the conversation. So even, for example, having conversations about future climate policy, I think is really difficult if we're not including individuals who have spent their entire careers working um, on the ground in fossil fuel industries, on farmers who are on the ground, um, on you know rural women who are spending every day living off the land. We need to be capturing these voices to really understand the challenge and to be able to um, find solutions. So I think is one is having a really diverse makeup of people who are influential in the decision making process, and I mean even there's there's cases of uh, countries like Canada, for example, set up when they were transitioning to a cleaner, a renewable economy, they set up a task force and they included a variety of voices. So they went around to different communities and basically sat down with people from, you know, environmental activists to coal-faced workers and had a, a bit of an ideation session and really tried to understand the key challenges. And I think in Australia, we're, we're not doing enough of that. And in terms of how we can make environmentalism more equitable and diverse on an individual level, as individuals, we can reach out to companies and boards and local government representatives and ask them, what's the makeup of your board and leadership team? You know, do you have uh, women represented? Do you have rural or Indigenous women that have a voice at the table? Have you included people that are most affected by your policies in the decision-making process? So um, I think this is where we have a huge amount of power to really challenge leadership structures and say, hey, let's, let's include more diverse voices. Let's include young people in the conversation. Let's, let's listen in a more uh, a deeper and, and wider way. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's definitely more room for Australia to be working more on this. I mean, I know in the UK there was a climate assembly back in 2020 and they had over 100 people from all walks of life, you know, week after week, you know, putting forward their perspectives and really trying to, you know, reflect that gamut of society. So it's definitely something where we need that representation of what society is to be able to put forward their views. And so I guess to lead on from that, what would you say to our world leaders, Nat, if you had two minutes in a room with them? <laughs> well, I mean, there are thousands of young people that have probably said it better than, than I ever could, including Greta Thunberg. I guess I would say that our failure to act over the past half century, even century, has really left us with little choice but to mobilise a, a wartime-like effort to address climate change. We've destroyed three quarters of our global lands. We've sent over a million species to the brink of extinction. We're on track to run out of forests, food, fish and water in our children's or grandchildren's lifetime. So I would say if if they're not willing to make this the number one priority and act now, then step aside, relinquish power and make room for people that can really tackle this issue. There is a huge amount of particularly diverse voices who would find it a privilege to have that sort of power to be able to shape policies that create a, a more prosperous and healthier future for everybody. That's a great answer. I love that. And certainly here in the UK, I think many of us would like our leadership to step aside right now anyway. It's really difficult. And I think you you said it well there that the young people have probably said, said it many times as well. And it's about getting them to listen to them. But what gives you hope for the future then uh, with this situation? Ten years ago, if I spoke about the environment, people would, and I don't know if you um, if you both experienced this too, but people would give me a little eye roll or make a comment about being a tree hugger and I guess it was a way of diminishing anything to do with environmental action. And today is vastly different. The environment is a core part of almost every major conversation in, in Australia or in, in global social corporate policy landscapes. The, the progress is just frankly remarkable. There is so much energy. There's so many more young and diverse voices being heard speaking up on climate change. I mean, we have at 15 years old, the, the greatest voice in the world on climate change was Greta Thunberg. I mean, that is huge. So I guess I just, I feel a great sense of hope and gratitude to all of the people who have been loud, all of the scientists that have just been doggedly persevering despite being ignored for so long for all of the people that are talking about climate change and trying to come up with solutions and holding businesses and governments to account. I've never witnessed so much activity, so much conversation and felt so much importance and weight on environmental conversations that it's um, it's quite staggering and it, and it does give me a huge amount of hope. I think that's such a powerful, hopeful note to end on, so we might leave it there. Thank you so, so much, Nat, for chatting to us. Incredibly insightful and I know people find a lot of value mm. in the conversation, so thank you so much. Yeah, that's oh, great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Your initiation into the Hatter Tribe is now complete. We really hope this episode inspired you and that you're coming back for more. If it did, please review, subscribe and share this episode with a curious, climate-conscious friend. It makes it possible for us to keep having these conversations for you. And there's lots more where that came from. Check out the show notes for more details on this episode and our fabulous guest. 
And if you just can't get enough of us and manage to grab another few minutes peace in your day, do come hang out with us on social channels where we share real tips for real parents and help you to turn eco-anxiety and gloom into fun and playful action. And not forgetting you can regularly see us making a fool of ourselves on reels. Together we can hope, act, thrive.